Good morning, church family. Good morning, church family. I'm evaluating you as you speak. I'm evaluating you. And I'm looking for smiles and enthusiasm and ready to hear from God's word. So good morning, church family. Nice. I'm seeing some smiles. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Derek, and you are? There's three of you in attendance today so far. My name is Derek, and you are? Hey, good. Good to meet you. Okay, yeah, church family, or if that's your name, that's fine. Or if you actually said your name, that's also good. Here we go. We all evaluate others. Think about whether that's true or not. If we're honest, we know we all evaluate other people, and we are being evaluated by others. And I want us to think this morning a little bit as we get started here before we jump into God's word. What do these things lead to? What are our evaluations? What are our criteria? What are our standards that we apply to others around us? And where does that lead? Uh, we evaluate others and, are, and we are being evaluated by others. And, and based on these evaluations, we come up with perceptions that we have of someone. We have a perception of who you are, what you're all about. And then and from those perceptions, so we have, we have evaluation that leads us to perceptions of each other or of people. And that leads us to um, these expectations of others. We, we have we evaluate each other based on various criteria. We come to have a perception about who you are and what you're all about. And then that, that shapes our expectations of, of what we think people should do or say or how they should act. Um, so it, maybe you saw this picture in the news this week. Did you see this? These are two very different people. And we could say how different they are in lots of different ways. And that's not the point of what I'm talking about. But these two very different people found themselves sitting next to each other at a football game, invited by the, to the game by a mutual friend. And they found themselves enjoying conversation and, and sharing jokes and, um, and, and goofing around together. And, and I think, well, I won't say that. It, the initial backlash the initial reaction to this story, the worldly wisdom of what some people responded to this photo was to declare one or the other as scummy. Well, that one's scummy. Well, I think that from my perception, that one's scummy. And so because one of them is scummy, and by the way, there's perceptions out there about both those could be true, right? Which one's a good person, which one's a bad person. And then, it, then there was perceptions, and then there was expectations of how they should treat each other. But of course, God's wisdom as followers of Jesus, indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, if we as followers of Jesus know that, that God created all people in his image, then we know the proper respect and the, the proper interaction with all human beings would be to respect and love all people. Yes? We, we know that. And... Therefore, then, if that is what is true because of God's work in our life that we can relate to and respect and love all people, then these two people can, can just fine enjoy each other's company, relate to one another, and show love and respect for one another. Can't they? Yeah. And so while some people reacted to this picture wanting a fight... Wanted one of them to call the other scummy, wanted them to have a fight, wanted them to go sit in a different seat and reject them. Both of these people responded this week saying that, 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 that kindness and love and respect and being able to enjoy each other's company is, is acceptable and, and happened despite any differences they may have. 
I think it's good. Yes. Grab your Bible. And this is a little precursor. I think it's going to set the stage for what I want to talk about, what God's going to talk to us about from his word this morning. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you would. We're in a series of messages called Better Together as we study the book in your Bible called 1 Corinthians. I want you to bring your Bible every week. I want you to pull your Bible out every week. I want you to open your Bible. I want you to use the table of contents to find 1 Corinthians chapter four. You could also pull out your favorite device and open your Bible app. I would love you to follow along with your finger in the text every Sunday as we learn from God through his word. So if you don't own a Bible and you, could, we, you want one, ask at the Connection Center in the lobby and we will give you a Bible. Otherwise, love you to bring it and pull it out so that we can hear from God through his word. We're in this series that we're calling Better Together, as I said. First uh, Corinthians in your Bible is a letter written by a, ch- a church leader about 2,000 years ago, a church leader named Paul. He wrote, write, is writing this letter to Corinthian Christians, followers of Jesus in a town called Corinth. That's why they're called the Corinthians. And as we, right in a, moment, in a moment, I'll start reading from the passage and you will too. But as we go, I want us to think about this. What are expectations that the Corinthians put on their leaders? What are we gonna see as we study? What, 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 um, what expectations did these Corinthian Christians have about their church leaders? Did they expect their church leaders to be impressive or scummy? And how does their impressions, how does their expectations impact then what they, how they think their, their leaders should act or behave or what they should do or say? What kind of standards do we see in this passage the Corinthians kind of evaluating by? When they're evaluating people around them, when they're evaluating themselves, when they're evaluating their church leaders, what are their criteria? And are their criteria, are their evaluation standards worldly, human wisdom, or based on God's ways? Let's take a look. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 13, all the way through, and then we'll take a closer look together. Okay, follow with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. This is how one should regard us. Remember Paul's writing. So he's saying us in terms of us leaders, us apostles, us church leaders. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and the Lord will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God 
has exhibited us apostles, church leaders, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Father God, as we always do, we look to you now. We open our hearts and minds to you. Um, God, as a church family, we put ourselves at your feet, desiring to hear from you. So God, I I pray that you would uh, help us to be still before you, help us to have ears and hearts that are open to hear from you. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word, that you teach us through your word. We thank you that you, uh, that, that as followers of Jesus, we have the spirit of God helping us to understand what we learn. So God, I pray that uh, we would submit ourselves to you now as we hear from you. Teach us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So back to the top, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us apostles as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, I want to Make sure we're on the same page. We've many, many of you have been with us the last few weeks as we've started to study this letter together. And if you've missed it at all, let's just make sure we're on the same page here. What is the situation that Paul finds himself writing this letter to? He finds himself writing this letter to a church that has divided itself into groups. The followers of Jesus in this, in this church in the town of Corinth have, are kind of picking sides and they're aligning themselves with certain leaders, the, the, their favorite leader, the leader that they think they agree with the most, or perhaps is the most impressive fancy talker. And so this, this, this church family is dividing themselves into groups. And you'll see uh, that verse on the screen from earlier in, in, um, in the letter that reminds us that there was this quarreling going on among these groups as they were taking sides. And so they would say, I follow Paul. That's the writer of this letter. But others are saying, I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. I follow Christ. And so they're, they're dividing themselves, aligning themselves to a certain leader, hoping that if I pick the right leader, maybe I'll get bonus points from God. Maybe this leader's right and those leaders are wrong. Maybe I need to make myself more important than other people because I'm aligned with, quote, you know, the correct leader. And so the Corinthians are dividing themselves. Well, as they divide themselves, they are also um, going against Paul. Except for the ones that said, I follow Paul, the others are, are, are critical of Paul. They're, they're choosing another leader because they see something that they are condemning in Paul, something that they are critical of. And, and we don't know always exactly what this might be, what would have led to these divisions. But they're aligning themselves with, with their, their leader of choice and they seem to be critical of Paul. And even if we don't know exactly what, what was it? 
Was it his, some perceived weakness that he wasn't impressive or, or the leader they wanted to follow? Or was it, we have hints in, in God's word that his speaking ability, perhaps he wasn't the most articulate. And so they were critical of Paul. And here's the deal. In separating themselves into these groups and in being critical of Paul, um, they, they were condemning Paul's ministry. They're saying, you can't be effective for God. I'm going to go with this leader I think is more effective than you. you. God can't use you because of your lack of skills or your lack of impressiveness or whatever this thing is that I think that you're weak about. And so how sad is it that if in going against Paul, they, they, they go against the, his potential to be used by God and miss his message. They thought they were above his message that he, Paul himself called his message spiritual milk because they couldn't handle spiritual, difficult spiritual truth. Perhaps they thought they were above that spiritual milk that Paul was offering. Perhaps, um, you know, again, they, they were critical of something. And so how sad though, if those things lead them to dismissing the message that God has through him. God had a message through him, a message of the cross, of who Jesus is and what he's done at the cross, that all of our life can be lived in light of the cross, in light of what Jesus has done. And if they're dividing themselves into groups and choosing sides and going against Paul, they're disdaining his message. Um, In writing this letter, Paul has a really tricky message situation to accomplish. Because they're questioning him. They're questioning his authority. And Paul says, wait a second. I was called into ministry by Jesus himself. Jesus himself appeared to me and called me into ministry. The message that God wants to proclaim to you, he's proclaiming through me. And so this letter is very tricky for Paul because he's been questioned. He's being called into question. And he needs to, in some ways, reassert his authority, right? He needs to convince these Corinthians that he has a God-given authority to speak truth into their lives. And so he has this difficult task in writing this letter of saying, hey, guys, pay attention. My ministry's from God. I need to reassert my spiritual authority in your lives. But you know what made it really tricky? His message about his authority was that he and the other apostles were to be seen as what? Servants. It doesn't seem like they go together. He's supposed to reassert his authority, but his message is followers of Jesus, the apostles, including myself, are to be servants. Servants of Jesus and and servants of you to an extent as well. Back to the passage, verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. See, he even says he doesn't judge himself. I've checked myself. I've checked my heart. I don't see there's anything wrong. But you know what? I'm not off the hook. Just because I think that I'm doing okay, I'm not off the hook because who is the ultimate judge? The Lord. It says at the end of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. So here's where in these verses, it seems like Paul is giving us some insights into where the Corinthians are blowing it, how they're, how they're evaluating people. They've decided they can evaluate others. They've decided they can be the authority and determine who's in or who's out or who's better or who's good or who's right. 
And Paul's saying, hey, hold on. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. I think there's an aspect here where he's saying, watch out for snap judgments. Watch out for premature uh, evaluating other people. Don't run ahead of yourself. Don't evaluate others when you don't have the information you need. Keep going in verse five. It is the Lord who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And it is the Lord who discloses the purposes of the heart. We need to come to grips with the fact that there are some things that only God knows. That's what that passage just said, right? It's the Lord that will bring to light things that were hidden in the darkness. It is the Lord who can disclose purposes, motivations of the human heart. And so when we pretend that we can evaluate others, when we look around and we try to make distinctions, evaluations, judgments about others, we need to be careful that we're not doing that from a know-it-all posture. Oh, I've got all the information I need. I've cl- I clearly ha- know everything about you or the situation or your motivations or your heart or what's going on or what the background is. So I'm coming from a know-it-all posture when in fact there are things that we cannot see, especially the motivations of the human heart. So we need to be careful about how we evaluate in these ways that are on the screen. Then can, the passage continues. Then each one will receive his commendation from who? Then each one will receive his commendation from who? God, the Lord. So we need to also be careful as we evaluate others that we're not accepting of some temporary performance-based standards, that we're not looking at short-lived, limited praises, that, that, we're not, um, that, that we're not reliant on things that don't matter in the long haul when instead... There are standards that are lasting. Verse three talked about being judged in the human court versus this verse saying, ultimately, our commendation comes from God. So don't be dependent or don't be um, relying on short-term praise that doesn't last, but that our commendation should come from God. The Corinthians had had this self-appointed authority. They had decided that they had the authority. They had decided they were spiritually mature or arrived enough or whatever that they just decided, you know what? We have the authority. We're in charge ourselves. We can make these judgments. We can make these evaluations about others. And in, but in, as we just read in those verses, Paul's response says, I am God's servant. Paul is saying, I am God's servant, not yours. And no one's allowed to judge someone else's servant. Now, Paul says, you belong to me. You know, you are mine in a sense. I, I, I am here to serve you, to um, be a servant for you and for your help and for your good. But there's a distinguishing factor here in these verses. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm a servant for you, but I'm not accountable to you. I am God's servant. I'm required to be faithful to him. I'm not accountable then to what you all say. I'm accountable to the master. So in these verses, Paul says, there's a way in which he's saying, so what you're saying about me really doesn't matter much. Paul's saying to the Corinthians that are critical of him, that are questioning, that are demeaning his message because of some perceived lack of skills or weaknesses, and they're dismissing him. And he's saying, 
What you're saying about me really is of little consequence to me. My conscience is clear. What matters is that Jesus is coming back, that he will be my judge, and that we will all stand before him. That's what Paul knows. There's a pastor and author named Stephen Um that helped me to study this passage this week, and he wrote something along these lines. We all evaluate. We all evaluate other people, and other people are evaluating us. We have standards by which we judge other people, and we, we, have, we have these criteria that, that help us come to, other, to conclusions about others. And, uh, and the others are evaluating us by similar means. And if we're honest, we like to evaluate we like to look around at those around us. We like to look at ourselves and evaluate. We like to look at people around us and evaluate, critique, have criteria, have standards applied to them. And we do this to our leaders as well. We like to evaluate, but how do we feel when the tables are turned on us? We like to evaluate others, but we've got very little interest in being ranked or evaluated or having standards applied to us. So perhaps what we need is to evaluate our evaluation process. Perhaps instead of evaluating others, or at least evaluating others with improper criteria with in, or, or in poor ways, we need to evaluate how we evaluate. We need to evaluate what our evaluation process is and what we are evaluating people on. What is God's word encouraging us this morning to evaluate um, based on? Instead of premature snap judgments, what about patient assessment? What if instead of jumping to conclusions, being premature in our evaluating others, what if we ask God to give us patient assessment of what's going on, what people are like, what they're all about, what their heart is? What if instead of being a know-it-all and approaching a situation like we have all the information we need, what if we recognize that we have personal limits and a lack of information, that we may not see the whole picture, that we may not know the other side of the story? <clears throat> what if instead of short-lived praise, depending on criteria that doesn't really matter in the long haul, what if we valued ultimate, the ultimate commendation, the ultimate recommendation, the ultimate encouragement, the ultimate affirmation, and that the, the scripture taught us is from God. We need to value um, that ultimate commendation is what God thinks of us, not how others are evaluating us. And then, you know, we said the, the, the Corinthians have that self-appointed authority. They had just put themselves in charge. They had decided they had the ability to judge other people. And there's ways in which all of us, I think at times, see ourselves as an ultimate authority. We've, we decide oh, well, I know enough, and I have opinions, and I, have, I can make a decision about this. I can evaluate this. There's times and ways that we all make ourselves the ultimate authority. But in doing so, we fail to recognize that the ultimate evaluating authority lies elsewhere. The ultimate evaluating authority is God himself. And so we need not put ourselves in those shoes. Verse 7, Paul writes to the Corinthians, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Corinthians thought they were in a good position to evaluate people. They thought they had earned some worthy identity, that they had matched up to some standard, that they had sort of arrived in a sense, 
Yes, they were followers of Jesus. Yes, they had been given the spirit of God. They were growing, but they had declared themselves arrived and ready and able to judge. And Paul says that anything we have is a gift from God. So the standards are from God. So if anything that we have is a gift, then the standards by which we evaluate ourselves and others need a radical change. If we tend to premature judgments and and act like a know-it-all and and make ourselves the authority, well, our standards that we evaluate other people must change in a big way, and they need to come from a place of humility. From humility. So what do the Corinthians expect of their church leaders then? So, so we're, at, we're asking God to use this passage. Not only was this letter written by Paul from God through Paul to the Corinthian church a long time ago, but because God's word is living and active, it's a letter written to us as well. So what did the Corinthians expect of their church leaders? And what, what do we expect of our church leaders? How do we think that leaders should come across? How should they be perceived? Do we tend to imagine them as impressive and having certain skills and that we only like them if such and such? Our, our elders, our pastors, our, our other leaders, what expectations do we put on them? What perceptions do we, what do we expect of them? Do we think that they're supposed to have success? Do we think that they need to be powerful, rich, spiritually mature, that they have to have kind of be perfect and arrived and, and we want to set them up here and they're deserving of honor and they're so strong? We prefer that. That's how we prefer to think of our leaders. We don't think of our leaders as scum of the earth. We don't think of our leaders as worthless and detestable and and to be thrown away. Paul, so Paul continues in this passage, verses eight and beyond, with sarcasm and irony. And what he's doing is he's contrasting. He's about to contrast his authority as a leader in the church with the Corinthians' perceived um, high station. You know, the, the Corinthians think, yeah, we're pretty special. God rescued us. We have the spirit. We have spiritual gifts. God is working. So, so Paul goes on with irony and, and sarcasm here to contrast his status, his authority as an apostle, and the way the Corinthians think of themselves. Look with me at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. The Corinthians, see, the Corinthians think that they're, they're relatively successful conditions. They think of what's happening to them as God's blessing. They think, wow, the, you know, the way our life is going and the way things are going and the way uh, I'm looking around the world and the way they're evaluating other people, they're thinking this is how God blesses us. And instead, in this contrast in our passage, Paul is contrasting, hey, you think it's God's blessing looks this way. Look at what my life looks like. You think God's blessing looks this way. Look at how us us apostles live. Because Paul is saying that his suffering for the sake of the gospel is probably a more accurate measure of Christian faithfulness. Following Jesus, giving our lives to Jesus Is it more likely to result in feeling puffed up and important because we're aligned with the right leader? Or is following Jesus more likely to be measured by the things that mark Paul's life that he goes on to explain here? Verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. 
like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. See, there's, there's, there's times, the scripture teaches there are times when followers of Jesus can evaluate fellow followers of Jesus. There are times, according to God's word, that we can judge fellow followers of Jesus. But, but this passage seems to be about the methods, how they're going about judging their leaders and, and the criteria they're applying. What criteria are the Corinthians applying that they're requiring of leaders? And is that criteria of God or is it of human wisdom? Because look at what's interesting here, I think, is in verses 8 and 10, we get in indications of how the Corinthians perceive themselves. They perceive themselves in ways like this. They've said in, the, you know, in this letter, it says, important, wise, strong, deserving of honor, puffed up. That seems to be how the Corinthians perceive themselves. And, and as it says on the screen, that's undoubtedly the way they think Paul ought to be. They're applying their experience, feeling puffed up and important and deserving of honor. And this is what a leader ought to be. And so they're applying those criteria to the Apostle Paul. How they perceive themselves, important, wise, strong, honor, is, is how they expect Paul to be. But the way that Paul actually is, the way he lives his life, the way he is, is the way they ought to be. Their criteria is all wrong. Their criteria of success, their standards of, of what a leader ought to be, they're, they're, they're applying the wrong things at the wrong times. And, and the verses 11 to 13 go on to say what Paul's life is like and how Paul comes across and perhaps how we all ought to come across as we follow Jesus. Verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's saying the, the other apostles and I are, have become detestable, worthless, rejected in the eyes of men in the eyes of the culture, in order to honor God, in order to live for him first and not these worldly standards that are being put on them. So how do we evaluate our leaders? How do we evaluate ourselves? What kinds of criteria and standards would the Bible, would God's word want us to put on ourselves or those around us or even our church leaders? Um, maybe I, uh, and, and, where do those, where do those, expect, where do those um, uh, criteria lead us? What perceptions do we have about how our leaders should be or what they should act like or how they should do or how they should interact? And then how does that affect our expectations of them and our evaluation of them and whether they're doing what we think God wants them to do or not? My, uh, I maybe have told this story before. This Bible that I'm holding uh, was one of my grandpa's last Bibles. My grandpa passed away in 2013, and when I got to go back to South Dakota for the funeral, my grandma and my uncle gave me uh, this copy of the Word, and it's what I bring up here every Sunday with uh, to preach from. 
to read God's word from. My pastor, my grandpa was a pastor for 60 plus years. My grandpa had three sons. Uh, two of them, my two uncles, are pastors. And then, um, and then I've had the opportunity to be in ministry as well. So I, I like to joke that I'm a third generation preacher, that I'm in the family business, right? But much more important than being in the family business is that I feel called by God to do what I do. Um, God couldn't have made it more clear to me 20 years ago when he called me into ministry that I was to serve him with my life. God couldn't have made it more clear to me two and a half years ago when he asked me to come and serve as lead pastor of Faith Church. Um, so, So I got to wrestle this week this passage reminded me this week of, of challenges that pastors face and how expectations have changed from generation to generation. Because I've got, I know pastors in my grandpa's generation, I know pastors in my dad's generation, and mine, and younger, etc. I'm not perfect, so pray for me uh, and, and, and pray that God will continue to use me as he sees fit. Um, but I wrestled this week with some of these, uh, these expectations and the way they've changed over the years, and what's expected of a pastor. Um, there are times and seasons and generations where certain pastors have been held on a pedestal and said, well, you need to be perfect. You need to be holy. I don't want to hear about your sin, because if, I, if you tell me you're a sinner, I, I won't be able to listen to you because I won't trust you, because that's the expectation that some churches, some people, some generations have put on pastors, put them on a pedestal, expect them to be a perfect spiritual example. Uh, another expectation I've seen in, in, uh, put on pastors is beyond their biblical role, beyond what the Bible calls a pastor to be, is there, uh, is there sometimes an expectation in our culture that pastors be these, biz, these unbelievable business leaders and these uh, uh, visionary strategists and like a CEO of a company and, and a powerful leader and impressive skills and, and these kind of things. Are, are these things put on, uh, put on pastors as well? Uh, I've seen expectations put on pastors like being a cultural influencer. You need to be like a Christian celebrity. You need to get a podcast. You need to be on TV. You need to make sure that people hear what you're saying because it's, impre- it's important that we look good because you look good. That you need to have these impressive skills and speaking abilities and whatever. Um, and that's what makes you a leader. And these are expectations. Again, I've, I've, I've got grandpa's generation, dad's generation, my generation, other generations of pastors that I've seen these kinds of expectations change over the years and be different in different places. But you know what I, what, what I haven't seen change? What I haven't seen change is what the Bible says a pastor is to be a church leader, an apostle, an elder of a church. What I haven't seen, uh, what I have seen stay the same is what the Bible says about our leaders. And that is that we're human, that we're fellow sinners with you on a journey of following Jesus and growing in Jesus. Uh, The Bible says that a pastor and an elder is to be a shepherd of God's people responsible for the spiritual growth of the church family, that the elders are, the elder and pastor are to give, their, uh, to give their time to teaching the word of God and to prayer. That's what I see in the Bible about expectations for the role of pastor. So how do we evaluate our leaders? What criteria are we applying to our leaders? 
What expectations do we have? Well, Paul applies the cross. That's what standard Paul applies. Instead of applying these cultural standards, these worldly wisdoms of of impressive skills and flashy speaking ability and impressive stature and being important and I'm aligned with the right leader, what Paul in this passage is doing is applying the standard, the criteria of the cross. He's going to evaluate all of life. I'm going to evaluate other people. I'm going to evaluate myself. I'm going to evaluate church leaders based on the cross. Because it's at the cross that we discover who Jesus is and what he's done. And so his gospel message, we say all the time around here, the gospel is the good news that God rescues sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we said a couple weeks ago that if we had to boil the gospel message down to two words in 1 Corinthians, it's Christ crucified. So Paul applies his theology of the cross. He applies the standard of the cross. That's what he wants to evaluate based on. He wants to say, you know what happened at the cross? God rescued a sinner like me through Jesus. Next Sunday's passage, when we get into the next few verses, Paul's even going to say, imitate me. Imitate me, and elsewhere in scripture, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. In other words, followers of Jesus, follow me as I follow Jesus. And here's what following Jesus looks like. It's evaluating everything by the cross, realizing that we can live our whole lives in light of the cross. Because instead of the Corinthians, filled, puffed up, important, seeking glory, seeking honor, ruling and wise and powerful, and thinking they've arrived, and thinking they're good to go, thinking they're ready to make judgments about other people, Paul says, my life looks more like a follower of Jesus. Paul's saying, me and these other apostles look far more like the master Jesus. And I want to read to you um, from Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah prophesied about the coming rescuer, and this is fulfilled in Jesus. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesies about the coming rescuer and that the coming rescuer would be a suffering servant. And this is not what people looked forward to. This is not the kind of leader, the expectations they've had of who Jesus would be, who the rescuer would be. And Isaiah prophesied this, and it later comes true in Jesus. Listen to what he says. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. To follow Jesus means to be a servant of Jesus. To follow Jesus means to be a servant of Jesus, which means to go the way of Jesus. To be a servant of Jesus means to follow Jesus, means to go where Jesus goes. And you know where Jesus went? To the cross. So for us to be followers of Jesus is to be a servant of Jesus, is to go with him in the way of the cross. What's the way of the cross? To be rejected by men, to be rejected by human perception, to be rejected by our culture, to be rejected by these so-called criterias and standards that are being applied to us and to our, to our friends and to our church leaders, to be rejected by men, to endure suffering, to go in the way of Jesus is to put aside ourselves and sacrifice, put aside our own wishes and desires and comfort and sacrifice self for the good of others. To go the way of Jesus is to evaluate everything we do and say in light of the cross.
Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness to us, for your love demonstrated to us at the cross. Thank you, God, that you have demonstrated your love in that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. God, we thank you for the gospel reminder of Christ crucified. God, I pray that you would teach us to live our lives in light of Christ crucified, in light of the cross. Help us to not apply uh, man-made criteria to other people. Help us not to have false expectations of ourselves. Help us to not have inflated um, criteria or expectations or perspectives of who our leaders ought to be. But instead, God, help us to consider Jesus and the cross and where we are able to be in relationship with you because Jesus has rescued us through his life and death and resurrection. God, would you remind us this morning of our need that we can't earn our salvation, that we can't earn being made right with you? Would you remind us this morning that it's nothing we do but everything that Jesus has done? Would you remind us this morning that it's nothing, there's nothing we can do to add to what Jesus has already accomplished for us at the cross. Would you remind us, God, that it's not about us, that it's about Jesus, that it's not about our efforts or our works or our following rules or matching up. God, would you help us to reject the idea that we can somehow earn salvation by, by striving, by working, by trying hard. But God, instead, we, rem- we thank you for the glorious good news that our rescue comes solely by your mercy and grace. Thank you that you have offered the gift of salvation to us undeserving sinners. God, help us come to the cross now and each day. Help us to look to Jesus. Help us to be reminded of who you are and how you save. Help us to come to the cross and and remember the life that Jesus lived that we cannot live, that he died the death that we deserve, and that he was raised again to new life, showing that we too can have new life in you. God, help us come to the cross and be reminded of the way Jesus lived by giving, by serving, by putting himself aside, and by rescuing us. Help us to live in light of the cross. Help us to live not for ourselves, but for others. And may all we do in these coming moments be in glorious thankfulness to you as we sing, as we give each other hugs and greetings, as we lift our voices, as we give our offerings now. God, may all of this be in light of the cross and thankfulness to your working in our lives. We love you and we thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.